So, um, this is the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, right? Our reading, wasn't that our reading great today? That's the Palm Sunday reading from John, the shortest of the various versions of that. And, um, you know, if you're into Shark Week, this is like Jesus Week, Holy Week is. And um, we're retracing the last week of the life of Jesus, beginning with the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday today. The Last Supper would be on Thursday, Passover. I think Passover, the Jewish Passover, is, is around the same time um, as the Christian celebration of the Last Supper this year. Crucifixion Friday, and uh, a poorly named Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday, which is Easter Sunday next Sunday. So to get us in the mood um, for Jesus Week, I want to um, just tell three um, telling moments in the last week uh, the last maybe two or three weeks of Jesus' life that just remind me as I was reading the story again this past week reminded me why I admire this man Jesus so much. Um, you know, I personally, I don't know about you, but I just don't work well. Um, my psyche goes kind of sour if I don't have someone to look up to. Like, I, I need a hero in my life, especially when, you know, stuff going on around isn't so hot in terms of like people you want to admire who are in positions of power and whatnot. So not to mention any names, but um, I like to think about Jesus a lot because I admire him and it's good for me to have that in my life. Um, sometimes the most telling things about a person that you admire aren't like the major accomplishments. Uh, they're not the stuff that makes it into the obituary. Um, but they're the gestures, the, the interaction with a person, the spontaneous moments. They're like the things that you hear, like as a pastor I do, I do funerals and, and it's my honor to be able to like meet with the families beforehand and you hear the stories about the person that only the really close people know, like, like Caleb Brokaw, uh, you know, he's like the most is like the most, uh, not, to my perspective as a pastor, non-limelight-seeking um, and yet really deep-souled, thoughtful person in the entire church. And I'm talking with him as he's um, dealing with his lung cancer and I see a picture in his living room there and it's a picture of some like grunge band and I'm like, oh, which man does that? as if I know any grunge bands or goth bands or anything like that. I asked the question, you know, and then I would nod knowingly when he tells me the name. It turns out it was like some kind of goth grunge band. There was an Ipsy Bar band, and Caleb was in the picture because he was the lead singer. And he was the guy, like, strutting around, like, you know, drawing all the attention. It's like, oh, my gosh, you just don't know Caleb until you know that fact about him. Or I, I see Ken over here, Sue Eckstein. Um, you know, uh, Sue uh, died a couple of years ago. And, and I learned about Sue that um, she worked at the, a local Ann Arbor bank. And the bank was held up three times in a row in a fairly short period of time. And Sue herself was the teller with the gun on her. For the, for the last time. And, you know, it was a horrible day. She was like all jangled. This is the third time. Gun is on her, blah, blah, blah. 
She and Ken are, like, to, like to go out to like um, cafes and places where there's bands and stuff, and they're like music hounds. And so they were going to some place in Toledo, and Ken says, oh, honey, we don't need to go. You had a horrible day. She said, no, I'm not going to let that guy stop me. And, you know, they go to the place, and they meet a couple. They meet our friends of theirs. And um, the friend says, oh, man, I had a horrible day today. And, and Sue says, I bet you $50 that my day was worse than your day. And he goes, oh no, you don't know my day. And he, he tells his story. It's just some piss and moan whining story about work. And Sue's listening. And she's like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. You had a horrible day. And then she just waits. And he says, well, tell me about your day. And she goes, $50, you know. And that's, that's like... So here's my three um, vignettes, three really moments. First is Jesus interacting with, with Mary. This happens maybe two weeks before his final week. So Jesus had three friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, who were siblings, and apparently they lived together. Um, they were probably well off. They lived in Bethany. It was like a day's walk from Jerusalem. They were more like supporters of Jesus, not like traveling disciples so far as we know. They, they were actually more friends of Jesus than they were disciples, strictly speak, speaking. We don't know of anyone else in his life uh, like that. So they're also, like for their time, a very non-traditional family. Um, there's like three mature adults living together, not married, siblings, um, and this is in a culture where like everybody got married just by arrangement at a certain age you were getting married so there's some story here why none of them is married and like you say you get the impression they were never married it's, it's unusual for any one sibling in that time to be say divorced or widowed but all three is odd people would wonder what's the story um, like you know when I was growing up um, nobody knew anyone who was gay right but everyone knew, you know, two older women living together for decades. And, you know, were they sisters? Were they cousins? Were they friends? Sometimes two women would move to a new town together and present as, as sisters. Uh, you know, the, the horrible phrase, I don't know if you remember it, from the 50s, those of you who, none of you, uh, old maids. Like, that was a phrase that people used to describe women in that situation. Um, sometimes people had questions about situations like that and it kind of hovered over them. And I, I'm not saying that Lazarus or Mary or Martha were gay, though maybe, but there was some story there. There was some secret that we don't know about them. And make, this makes their friendship with Jesus a little extra like, interesting or fascinating. Um, because Jesus was also living outside of like the conventional social norms, his circumstances of life. He was an unmarried rabbi in his late 20s or early 30s and a prominent rabbi and he was unmarried and that was like extremely unusual. So their friendship had some interesting qualities to it. Lazarus, the brother, becomes gravely ill and Mary sends for Jesus, who has the reputation by now as a great healer. Jesus doesn't respond. He's in another city, another town. He doesn't respond. He doesn't drop what he's doing and rush to his friend's side. Lazarus dies. 
and now Jesus is arriving to uh, the now bereaved families coming into town. Mary goes out to meet him. She's mad sad. Um, she can't understand why Jesus didn't respond to her urgent appeal. Uh, her hurt just comes pouring out of her heart when she sees Jesus. Why didn't you come when I called? And I was like, man, you know, we've all been Mary, right, in that situation. We've all, like, been really in need of some support and some help and we've you know thought we extended a call for the help and we didn't get the help and it's oh it's a horrible feeling but we've also been Jesus in that situation you know not being there for a friend or a loved one who needed us I, you know uh, my late wife Nancy um, her dad uh, turned out the phone rang one one uh, would have been April evening and we were having dinner and we had kind of a structured family because we had single people living with us we were like a Christian communal household sort of thing and so we didn't we had this rule not to answer the phone during the dinner dinner time and that that was where phones were attached to walls and they rang ring like that and like you could answer them or not and you didn't see and blah 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 so we, we had to practice not to answer the phone well, it turns out it was Nancy's dad calling because he had been out golfing with his wife, Nancy's mom, and she came, they came back from the golf course and she was feeling kind of ill and sick. And I was a registered nurse, so I was like someone to call. And it turns out she was having a heart attack. It turns out she died. And we find this out that, oh, he had called and we hadn't answered the phone. And it's like, ooh, not a good, not a good feeling, not being there for someone when they need you. So now here's the moment. It's not uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus' response to Mary's disappointment in him, Jesus. And I'm reading from a translation. It's a new translation by uh, David Hart. It's hues very closely to the roughness of the original Greek. And it reads like this. Therefore, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, he groaned in his spirit and yielded himself to his turmoil and said, where have you laid him? Then it says, and Jesus wept. But the word in the Greek is like loud sobbing, a wailing, kind of weeping. So the, the precise moment though is, therefore when Jesus saw her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and yielded himself to his turmoil. He yielded himself to his turmoil. So if you ever felt like intense emotion rising, yet there are like reasons not to yield yourself to it, um, as was the case with Jesus here. Uh, he's outside in a public space. There's a large entourage. He couldn't enter town, a town without, he couldn't just slip into town. You know, it was a scene. Um, in, in these moments of feeling like the emotion, like rising up inside of you, you know, the brain is amazing like we can process even intense emotional events at many different levels simultaneously right so one part of your brain in that situation is like fully in the emotion like you're you know the emotion is a wave and you're surfing the wave you're just in it you're just on it but there's another part of your brain that is observing yourself having this emotional experience and it's actually a kind of a calculating part of your brain. And you're thinking, can I afford to like 
express this or not in this situ situation. And there's like a split moment when you can decide what you're going to do about it. So I, I've been doing this weekly therapy, kind of intense therapy, and we're down to some core stuff. This is last week. Boring stuff. Don't be nosy about my personal life. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I'm talking with the therapist and, and I'm feeling something's kind of, we're touching on something and it's kind of like welling up. And the therapist doesn't notice. I mean, I've, I've got really highly developed uh, male pattern maleness. I can just, you know, show <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm fooling my own therapist. He doesn't see that I'm like, mm, I'm ready to let her rip. And, and um, so he talks a little bit more to the point. And there's like, uh oh, more welling up. And it's like two episodes in my life are like um, side by each. One recent, well, in my case, that's like five years ago, but recent at my age means like within the last 20 years. So one, one is recent, and then one is like 45 years ago, and these two episodes are like, oh my gosh, they're just sitting side by side with the same emotional resonance, and I'm like, what do I do? So literally, I look at my watch to see how much time is left in the session, because he's very clear about the about the time and I'm like it's 10 minutes and I knew my watch was a little bit fast compared to my phone so I adjusted calculated for that I said we've got 10 minutes it's like I'm like okay we're this far into the therapy I think I can I can show him this side of me you know and I say to him um, moment I'm having a I'm having an uh, uh, an affective moment <laughs> I'm spitting this out I, uh, I'm going to need some water to get through this. He doesn't have any water right there. He's like, he runs out in you know, the bathroom in the office. He brings me these two little cups of water. I'm like, you know, hands them to me. I drink the water and I, oh, I just let it all out, you know. And I, I, you know, it's, I'm blubbering. I'm, I'm, you know, giving in fits and starts this 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 narrative, and and it's like, oh my gosh. At the end of that session, I was like, oh my gosh, that was so worthwhile. Thank you, doctor. I needed that. What I did is I yielded myself to my turmoil, and I made a decision to do that, like Jesus did, and like that Greek phrase, I yielded myself to my. He yielded himself to his turmoil suggest so only Jesus did that not with his therapist in, in that he had learned to trust over a year's worth of counseling but he did this out in a semi-public venue with an entourage and with onlookers who included adoring admirers and who included critics and people suspicious of him and in the context of Mary's intense emotion which she was pouring out to him and there was an aspect of blame in her intention and emotion but there was just something happened and what did he do? He didn't like assert his mastery of the situation. I'm here. Everything's going to be okay. He didn't even like search for the right words to speak to her, to console or comfort her. But like something real was happening. It was his friend. She was having this intense emotion. 
he was his mirroring system was mirroring her anguish and it was putting him in touch with his own anguish and he just let it out he yielded to his turmoil in the presence of his friend and that was their connection in that moment you know God I love that man you know someone who can do that in a situation like that I love that man this is someone with a capacity for human connection at the deepest level you know when I when I see this about Jesus I think you know maybe I could yield myself to my turmoil in his presence knowing that he yielded himself to his turmoil in the presence of his friend Mary and it's like I like Jesus a great deal okay that's episode number one episode number two it's a very different response to Mary's emotion uh, probably maybe a week or two later so after the raising of Lazarus Jesus retreats to the wilderness near Ephraim for his own safety because this is like a national crisis and he's at the center of it he's leading a messianic movement that is threatening to the stability of Israel Israel's leaders know it and so they they have an incentive to kind of like quash this movement because Jesus in particular has no particular plan for how he's going to protect Israel when the Romans who are the occupation force get threatened by the messianic uprising and squash it like they have so many times so they're operating well within their rights out of concern for their beloved nation and he's in the middle of all this so he 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 kind of leaves for a week or so and then he comes back to Bethany on his way to his final trip into Jerusalem for the big crisis coming to a head and he's dining with the newly raised Lazarus and Mary and Martha and you gotta it, you know, imagine that Entertainment Weekly or something has got film crews around but there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in this dinner and there's an at the dinner there's another loaded uh, gesture um, another move emotionally packed move from Mary toward Jesus the scene is um, think of it more like a semi-public uh, banquet than like a private dinner Jesus disciples are there at least the 12 are with him likely the town leaders are, are there as well for this prominent guest in a prominent home Lazarus Mary and Martha and then in that setting something happens that would normally only transpire between a husband and a wife in private but it happens between Jesus and Mary who remember are both older single adults and they're also close friends in in a culture that where that kind of connection isn't common at all or approved at all even so here's our moment so Mary taking a pint that's 16 ounces pint <laughs> you've seen a pint so Mary taking a pint of ungent of pure nard uh, nard would be the flowering plant that was like the caviar of fragrance in the Middle East anointed the feet of Jesus and with her hair she wiped his feet off and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the ungent the pungent ungent so this this is a you know a gesture of extraordinary intimacy 
um, it's sensual with especially with the you know with the perfume and the wiping of his oiled feet with her long hair in this Middle Eastern you know, strictly segregated gender kind of culture Judas Iscariot one of uh, Jesus disciples objects to what's going on and he does so like in a typically religious way he does he pulls out like a moralizing principled objection to what he sees Jesus doing this perfume could have been sold uh, and the money given to the poor um, but but he's insincere uh, Judas is soon to betray Jesus he's grown resentful for his own reasons of what Jesus is doing and thinks he knows better and this is his like picky religious moralistic objection uh, that's you know meant to shame the woman and also like meant to like shame Jesus a little bit himself and Jesus just rejects it out of hand with a single sentence leave her so she might keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you will have with you always but me you do not always have now Jesus is not Steve Mnuchin and his beautiful wife holding the sheet of newly minted $50 bills in the US Treasury for the photo op you know he's he's not the guy who made millions of off people losing their homes in the in the mortgage crisis this is Jesus who owns what the clothes on his back who like central to his teaching to, to wealthy people is sell everything you have and give it to the poor who's practiced that himself but he knows a moralistic religious cover argument when he sees one and he refutes it with this single sentence that is politically incorrect too you know the poor you will have with you always but not me so he's basically telling Judas your moralistic gambit is not working on me like it's I'm sorry it's just not working on me so I admire this man like wow that's impressive isn't it like who's like that he's, he's a complicated human being who is just so so good the the third episode is uh, Jesus in the center of um, adulation that is bound to go sour so this is Palm Sunday we're talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem the um, focus of our reading a little earlier um, the adoring crowds on the outskirts of Jerusalem are laying palm branches on the road um, as he rides in on a donkey the foal of a donkey in fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of Zechariah that the Messiah would make an, a, an entrance into the city like this um, there are shouts of Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord which is like the message the greeting for the Messiah in, in Israel's tradition. Um, now, if you've been around the horn here on the religious landscape and you've been to Palm Sunday services, you've heard many sermons on Palm Sunday, uh, the, you know, the obvious point uh, that crowds can turn on a dime. And there's a difference between being a follower of Jesus and being a fan of Jesus. And these crowds, they were, just the, they were just fans of Jesus. And what he really wants, what he's really looking for, is ardent, devoted, devoted followers. 
the thing is, <laughs> Jesus knows this, and yet at the same time, he's fully in the moment. He's enacting the prophetic entry into Jerusalem, and he's rejoicing with the fickle crowds who are rejoicing in him. Um, he's, rece he's receiving their hosannas, like he's freely receiving it. Um, and he's not criticizing them for what he knows will transpire. He, he knows it's going to be short-lived, their welcome. He knows the scapegoat mechanism is being triggered. And he is enacting a classic scapegoat ritual. And he's doing that in the hopes of being vindicated dramatically in some way by God to demonstrate his innocence as a way of exposing and dismantling the power of the scapegoat mechanism. So he knows what he's doing. If you read the Gospels, all of this is super clear. And he's seen adoring crowds before go sour on him. I mean, he started off his ministry in Nazareth, the home, hometown synagogue. And he read the, the Messianic prophecy from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And the people were amazed, it said, in his hometown synagogue. And, and he was like, where does this teaching come from and with authority? And then there was an accusation in, among the crowd. And then the crowd started mirroring the accusation. And before you know it, Jesus is in the middle of a mob and he's being like driven off of a cliff and he escapes like with his life. So he knows how this goes down. He's seen it before. And yet he had the ability to be present to the praise and the appropriate response of Israel to the Israel's Messiah. And he's not sulking about it. He's not anticipating his future sense of injury. He's not singing, will you still love me tomorrow? You know, um, this is helpful for me because sometimes out of admiration for Jesus, like we don't offer ourselves as followers because we know we're going to let him down. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like out of admiration for Jesus, we don't offer ourselves as a follower because we, we revere him so much and we admire him so much that we, and, and there, we know there are so many people who are called by his name or use his name who must be letting him down. And we just don't want to be that person. And so we, we keep our distance out of like our admiration for Jesus. We know ourselves. We're prone to enthusiastic beginnings, but we lose interest or we don't live up to our promises, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a U2 song, you know, I'm, I'm a former evangelical pastor of a certain age, which means um, that, that my version of the lip patch of the cool hip pastors, I know U2 songs. That's like works for the 1990s, but you know, that's recently, right? So <laughs> there's, a, there's a U2 song, it goes, all the promises we make from the cradle to the grave, and all I want is you. And then it circles around, that's the refrain, it circles around later in the song, all the promises we break from the cradle to the grave, and all I want is you. And like that's, that's what you live with, that knowledge of yourself. If you are a follower of Jesus, like the promises you make from the cradle to the grave, all I want is you. And the, and the promises I break from the cradle to the grave, but all I want is you. 
And that's the thing. It's not about our amazing follow-through, which doesn't exist. It's about God. Like God involves us, but it's not about us. That's the great relief of engaging with God. And of course we have our moments of like, oh gosh, we, we're, we're in this thing. We're, wow, you know, God is awesome. I feel connected, followed by distraction and followed by disinterest. And, but it doesn't invalidate the love in the moment. Jesus receives the love in the moment that we give him, knowing the nature of our humanity. So yes, our praise and our admiration of Jesus is absolutely mixed. It's not consistent, inconsistent, but that doesn't invalidate it. So are we any different than our like addicted brothers and sisters? You know, um, you know, most recovery, like from alcoholism, is a process of quitting and fits and starts, right? Anyone who's been through it, it's a process of fits and starts. There aren't a lot of stories in AA. I admitted I had a problem. I started going to the meetings. Fast forward 30 years, I'm celebrating 30 years of sobriety. It, it doesn't work like that. There's like a, at least a phase, sometime an extended phase of quitting in fits and starts. Everything of significance that we do, we do it in fits and starts. Now that's what it means to be human. Um, to engage in something meaningful in your life that might absorb a significant portion of your life in order to do that you have to factor in failure as much as success if you're going to estimate what's going on anything worth doing is worth doing poorly rather than not at all like if it's really worth doing then it is worth doing poorly rather than not at all um, and Jesus seems like someone who can operate with that. So um, this is now part of the announcements, which shouldn't count to my sermon time. <laughs> Easter, we're having baptisms. And um, we do baptisms, like, in the Jesus tradition, uh, baptism is like the move that we make as a gesture toward um, Jesus or, or think of it as the Jesus vision of God if that's better for you um, it's like our way of doing what Mary did with her expensive perfume um, we, we bring ourselves to Jesus we bring like what's most precious in our life which is our life and we just offer our life such as it is to Jesus um, that's, what, that's what the sacrament of baptism is meant to express. This has been going on for, you know, 2,000 years. The Jews practiced baptism. The Essenes at least practiced uh, baptism out in the desert. John the Baptist was practicing baptism. You know, uh, baths in water as a sign of connection to God, like, goes a long way back. Now, some churches have their strict rules about baptism, and I, I absolutely honor those. Like, what age is the right age to be baptized? What mode, sprinkling, immersion? We're less particular about those things, as perhaps you may have been and be able to infer by our church culture. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting to me that even the uh, Christian traditions that have very specific, it's got to be this way in order to work, um, and especially the idea of like you're only baptized once in your life they also have like a like an informal renewal of baptism tradition 
Like Catholics have that. Like, you know, if you, if you go to the Holy Land and you're Catholic, you're going to renew your baptism in the Jordan River. Or you might do it at Rome in the catacombs or whatever. It's, it's just a thing. Like everybody, we all basically do the same things. We just call it by different names and we have different theologies to justify it. But we all basically like work the same problems in similar ways. As I was praying this morning, I had this sense about our, our, especially about our LGBTQ community here at the church. We have so many people who um, have had like a traumatic disruption in your faith. Like, you know, maybe grew up in a faith community, but as you discovered who you are, you sense that like a significant part of who you are was actually not like wanted by God. Um, like that does something to your head that scrambles up your brains in a very significant way and it scrambles up your whole connection to God and your understanding of God and many people in our in our congregation have been through that and it, it may be an LGBT question or maybe some other thing that's going on in your life or about you but many of us understand what that feels like and and I think there may be something um, particularly healing or empowering um, if that describes you to consider getting baptized on Easter as like a renewal of your baptism where you're specifically like bringing yourself as you are and regarding it like Mary regarded that um, perfume she knew it was precious it was the most precious thing in the household and she brought it to Jesus knowing that Jesus would regard it as precious and everyone around in the dinner scene would regard it as precious and she lavishly poured it out on Jesus that's actually what's meant to happen when you're baptized that we are giving ourselves as we are and it's precious and Jesus regards the whole of it as precious as do all the witnesses and so if you've been through that experience I encourage you to think about uh, getting baptized on, on Easter Sunday. Um, I also wanted to invite people who don't have like um, what I would describe as a Christian religious identity to consider getting baptized. Um, and you don't want a Christian religious identity, but you actually feel a connection to Jesus and an admiration for Jesus. And like, that's how I was baptized. I was baptized as a as a baby when I was a, grew up in an Episcopal family, but then I was baptized when I was about 20 years old after a disrupted um, faith connection. And for me, it was not about like, I knew the Christian package, I had studied all the creeds, I, there was stuff I, I knew that Christians believed that I didn't believe, and I hope I never had to believe, and, but I was a Jesus freak, I was like, I like Jesus and I want to organize my life around him. I want his influence in my life. And I showed up at some Bible study and they were doing baptisms and I was like, okay, I'll get baptized. And I, and I did it. And it wasn't like I'm crossing some orthodoxy threshold or I'm entering into some like religious identity as a Christian. If I'd known that you could be a secular humanist and a Jesus follower, I would have signed up for that. If I thought it were possible to be a Buddhist to be a Jesus follower, that would have been cooler to me and I would have been fine with that. For me, it wasn't about like entering into some kind of religious identity. It was about a connection with 
with Jesus. And I think that actually describes a number of people um, coming to a church like ours. So um, if you want to be baptized under those auspices or with that understanding, like that's, that's um, totally fine. You don't have to sign up to be baptized. You can just show up next Sunday and uh, bring an extra change of clothes. And if you decide during the service that you want to be baptized and you didn't bring a change of clothes, I think we have extra changes of clothes. So you change into like some shorts and, and shirts or whatever and you get baptized. You're not styling. You're not looking so, you know, great. But nobody notices because we're all standing. We're singing. You know, it's not focused on you for the immersion baptisms. And then you can go out and change back into your still dry clothes. The details matter, right? Um, we're done. Um, let's.